The Lord be with you. Let us pray. From our opening hymn, Lord, open now my heart to hear, and through your word to me draw near. Let me your word, air pure, retain. Let me your child and heir remain. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Luke 11 today. Last week, uh, we were able to, um, to cover the last bit of Jesus talking about prayer and binding the straw man. You might have re- recalled that. Um, we had a lingering question. Are the Bowman's here? Dwight had a question that he asked me. So here we are at the ordination reception. Everybody's having a good time, like drinking beer, eating barbecue. And Dwight said, hey, Pastor, remember you're talking about hell? Like, ugh. What a downer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that was a good question, though. So I wanted to address it. It was you're basically just unfolding. Or it's, Sorry, can you remind me what it was, Dwight? The devil's activity in the human heart. Yeah, okay. So if, it, since, if you weren't here last week, just to kind of get everyone up to speed, it's not on your handout for today. So if you have a Bible, it's in Luke 11, um, verse 19. Jesus is cast out. Uh, a demon and they're accusing him of like working for the devil basically and Jesus is like well what sense does that make if I'm casting out demons and I work for the devil it's kind of like counterproductive for the devil's kingdom don't you think and he says um, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace his goods are safe but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil so this picture of a strong man Uh, the devil guarding his palace and he's got goods in his palace that he has and the one who is stronger than he comes takes over the strong man's palace and takes away his stuff and that's supposed to be a picture of Jesus overcoming the devil so we got talking last week about okay if the devil is the fully armed strong man who's guarding his palace and he's got goods get that picture devil strong man with a palace with stuff in it What's the palace? Where's the palace? What are the goods? So you get that picture? So there's a devil. He's got this palace. Kevin, what? So the devil's kingdom. So like, first let's think, and so maybe it's a bad and unfair question, but where is that? Which raises a problem that when Jesus descends into hell, if earth is hell, then he descended from hell. Uh, you, you, you're, you. I just want to think these things through. Like, we want to be careful with our language. So where, where is? So we, we, we want to be careful about locking hell into a particular place in the same way that we want to be careful about locking heaven into a place. It is a place because the scriptures talk about heaven and hell as places, right? And yet, like especially what recently this past week they're like releasing new pictures of new galaxies and whatever telescope is seen further and further out and lo and behold they still haven't found heaven no matter how far out they look right and yet it's a place there we talk jesus says today you will be with me in a place paradise right 
So, we're, so we, get the, we get into this complexity of realms, the, the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm. Of course you can't see it or visit it. If you could, it would be physical and not spiritual. So we can't visit it or see it necessarily with our bodies. And yet, anyway, at least not now until the return of Christ. So when we're thinking, we're thinking about this working of hell and the devil like taking his taking control of his palace and having goods within the palace, we're, th- we're talking more about the work of the devil. And, and just kind of to qu- quickly summarize our conversation from last week, when we, when we think about demon possessions and devil work and stuff, we often think about what's portrayed in the movies. And it's not all bad because what the movies get right is that where there is the devil, there is immorality and uh, violence, you know, but that's not, it's not the only thing, nor is it necessarily the main problem. What's the main thing that the devil does? What does Satan mean? Accuser. Accuse of what? Sin. Well, here's the thing. So in the picture here, when Jesus says, when, I, when verse 22 of chapter 11, when, a, when one stronger than he attacks him, attacks the devil, and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So, I mean, this picture of attacking the devil and taking his stuff. Well, how does Jesus overcome the devil? What's his attack? It's contrary to what we think about attacking. It's not a very good strategy when it comes to our earthly wars. How does Jesus finally win? His death. So he wins over the devil by dying. And by his death, what's the main thing that Jesus accomplishes on the cross? Or one of the main things? He forgives sin. So if the primary strength of the devil is to accuse of sin and then Jesus goes and forgives sin, then the primary power of the devil has been stripped. So now the devil comes and accuses of sin, and the sin's been forgiven. Interestingly enough, the the devil's accusation is actually, it's accurate. It's true to a point. Because we do, according to the law, we have sin. And we are terrible. We don't deserve salvation and so forth. And yet, so the devil comes and brings his accusation in our conscience in the heavenly throne room, as he did against Job, and brings us, uh, brings accusation that we deserve nothing but wrath and punishment. And Jesus comes and says, no, all that sin is on me, and I died for it. So we've, we've talked about this before, Luther's the great exchange, the scriptures talk about constantly Jesus taking upon himself our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So he takes all of our sin and he gives us all of his righteousness. He takes away the bad and gives us all of his good. So that now, according to our sinful flesh, we're still in our sin, we're still in our flesh. And yet the Lord looks at us through Christ and says, forgiven, holy, and righteous. And so to the devil, he comes to bring his accusation against us. You deserve nothing but hell and punishment. And Jesus says, nope, that's all died for. That's all on me. I've paid for all that sin. They're forgiven. So that's the, it's the work of the devil more so than the, I think I might have misspoke 
uh, or maybe just wasn't as clear as I, as I would have liked to have been last week. When, it, when we think about the palace, so where exactly is the palace of the devil? Where is he working? So I, I think more of like, instead of hell, because it doesn't say hell, it says his, it's the analogy of a palace that's being guarded and it's, that's overtaken. So rather than thinking about it as like hell ultimately being in our hearts or heaven being in our hearts, that doesn't make any sense. Because then I die, I go into myself. <laughs> Um, but rather, it's the work. It's the work of the devil that's happening within our conscience. And also in the heavenly throne room. So in the heavenly throne room before God, and this is really complex, weird stuff that we can't fully comprehend because it is otherworldly. It is the spiritual realm. But the devil is cast out of heaven. Jesus talks about, I saw the devil cast out of heaven. But, but chronologically, we think about the devil being thrown out of heaven well, he had it before he slithered into the garden, right? So before, maybe before, it would have been in time, somewhere between creation and the fall into sin is the fall of the devil, falling out of, being cast out of heaven. And yet that same, that same picture of the devil falling out of the heavenly throne room is happening every time sin is forgiven. It's, and this is where it gets kind of complex because we got chronologically the devil thrown out of heaven before creation. And then Jesus talked about, even within his own ministry, when the disciples come back saying, we're casting out devils in your name, the demons in your name, and they listen to us. And Jesus says, I saw the devil falling from heaven. In that context, every time sins are forgiven, the devil is kicked out, out of the heavenly throne room, out of our own consciences. That's the ongoing work of the proclamation of the gospel, the, the daily kicking out of the devil. And in the catechism, it goes with drown, daily drowning of the old Adam. And then our old Adam is, floats, you know, bubbles back up to the top. <laughs> so we drowning the old Adam again and again. Any, I mean, any question more clarification? Okay. So then today, let's look at our, if you got your hand out there, we'll maybe cover one eighth of it. <laughs> Return of the unclean spirit. So Jesus has cast out the devil. He's talked about binding the strong man. And then we get verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What is he talking about? So a person's, so there's a demon that's cast out, and already we approach demon possession text maybe with like some suspicion, right? Because how many... It's one thing for us to kind of wrap our minds around healings because we've seen blind people, maybe. They haven't seen you. you, you we've, we can understand physical illnesses, right? So, we can, so when, when it comes to healing, well, okay, Jesus healed a blind person, he healed a lame person. But then a demon possession, we're like, well, what is he getting at here? 
And so again, we, our minds go to the movies and we're thinking, I haven't seen some, somebody walking backwards, crawling up walls with their heads spinning around, spitting out you know, green vomit and stuff. Like that's the picture of demon possession that we get from Hollywood. And it's, I mean, according to the scriptures, in some cases, it, it seems to be pretty nuts. But remember, we, we remember what the primary work of the devil is, bringing his accusation, and then really, just as Jesus said before this in verse 23, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Wherever the, wherever the Lord is not, we find the devil. There's no neutral. There's no neutral gear. And uh, the bondage of the will, Luther says that either, so you can kind of picture our souls as a horse and either God is riding the horse or the devil's riding the horse. But the horse isn't just riding off on its own. It's being steered by one or the other. So when, when we think about demons being cast out, in a way, we can think about it in, in the daily, our, our daily being forgiven, the, de the devil doing his work on us, daily being cast out in a minor sense. But there's also, in a fuller sense, these devils having full control over people. And this gets at what we say in holy baptism. In fact, Luther's... Um, Luther's baptismal rite actually starts with an exorcism. You, you might not have ever heard it. I'm not sure if the old, if some of our, some of our maybe old, older members might have actually included these in their baptismal rites. But like, you remember how in the rite of holy baptism, there's like a lot of paragraphs about baptism. And like you get like, we're, you know, I, I'm trying, I always think about what it's like for the, the, the viewer of a baptism, right? You're kind of watching it. First of all, you think, there's a baptism today? Oh. <laughs> Maybe you don't think that. Uh, but you sort of like, we're, we're, we hear these, all the biblical institutional verses for baptism, what the Lord is doing in holy baptism. Then there's some prayers. And then right away, it jumps right into, and that's what the, the family of the baptized, uh, they're not always you know, necessarily faithful church attenders as often as they would like to be attending. They may, maybe haven't seen that many baptisms. Uh, and, and really, to put the best construction on it, not everybody's that keen in talking in front of a crowd, like looking at a crowd. All of you could stand up and look at me and talk, but if I had some of you stand up and walk up here and face you, you just like, right? So here they are, they're standing up here in front of the congregation, holding a baby that they're scared of, is it going to scream? Is it going to blow out? Is it going to, what's the problem? What's going to happen to this, right? There's a lot on their mind. And then I say, right after the Lord's Prayer is, do you renounce the devil? And like 25%, of, maybe 50% of the time, they're like, oh, the baby's not going to talk on her own or his own. <laughs> yes, I renounce him. Uh, Luther's right, actually, before those renunciations, there's a depart ye unclean spirit. There's like actually oil, there's chrismation oil that's involved there. But there's a full-blown like, full exorcism, like casting out the devil and, and a, like specifically, I cast you out in the name of... So we're recognizing that before we're baptized, we belong to the devil. So this is the, the work of holy baptism is actually an exorcism. So at the very beginning of baptism, or at least in that right, right before we baptize the baby, do you renounce the devil? Yes, I renounce him. Do you renounce all of his works? Yes, I renounce them. Do you renounce all of his ways? Yes, I renounce them. As a side note here, just maybe you haven't thought through this. So we're, so we're baptizing a baby who can't speak for himself or herself. 
So who's speaking for the baby? Why? Well, first, practically, because the baby can't talk. But why are the parents the ones speaking for the baby? Responsibility for what? For bringing up the child into the faith that, the, that they're confessing on behalf of the child. Because notice, the questions are all asked of the baby. Do you renounce the devil, small child? And then the parents say, yes, I renounce him on behalf of the baby because the parents are raising the child in that faith. Just in the same way we say to the baby, do you desire to be baptized? And the parents say, yes, I do. Because we're going to raise the child in that faith that we're confessing today on his behalf or her behalf that we're going to raise that child up into. Now, this gets into the historical practice in the church of godparents. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure if when this started, the Lutherans maybe did there, or the Protestants started calling godparents what? Sponsors. Why? Because godparents sounds Catholic, and we can't be looking Catholic. Maybe, I'm just, I'm just guessing. You're like, why would they change that? Well, the idea of godparents has to do with the God stuff, faith, right? So it's not bad to say godparent, godfather, or whatever. But why have godparents? Unfortunately, it's often, well, because this is my college roommate, and he asked me to be in his wedding, and now he's going to be the godparent of my kid. And then you get to the service, and they're kind of shuffling through the bulletin. They have no idea what they're saying. And then we say of the sponsors, ideally, sponsors are to confess the faith expressed in Luther's small catechism. And the godparents say, I don't know what that is. So we're getting better, we're trying to get better at talking through this with the parents of baptized. Like, okay, why do we have godparents at all? Jesus never said we had to do it, by the way. So why would the practice of godparents emerge within Christianity? Why is it practical? So what? Exactly. In case something happens to the parents. And now, it's a common misunderstanding that the godparents also are the honorary, like, adopt, adoptees. If mom and dad are in a tragic accident, you're the godparents of the kid. You have to actually now take these kids under your roof and become their parents. That's not what's happening in, with godparents. All they're saying is, if something happens to mom and dad, I'm going to raise the child in the faith that we confessed at the baptism. Ideally, the faith confessed in the small catechism. So think way back to the early church under Nero. As soon as I'm baptized into the Christian faith, what is, what's very likely to happen to me in the near future? I got a target on my back, for, or really an ax target on the back of my neck, right? So if I'm a, if I'm a Christian, and I'm trying to be a faithful Christian in the first and second century, the odds of me dying is pretty high. So I've got these little babies though. I've got these kids. If something happens to me, I want to make sure that they are taught about Jesus so that I can see them again, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a significance of, of, of godparents. Um, they're not necessary though. I mean, a lot of times people say, well, I don't, especially if they're new to Christianity, or new to the Lutheran confession of faith, they're like, especially like evangelicals or those who don't believe in infant baptism, they're like, I don't know anybody who actually 
knows why we're baptizing babies. So we're like, okay, you don't have to. Baptism still counts with like godparents, but the idea, so just so it's important for me that you understand kind of the idea of godparents. And that actually emphasizes all the more the role of parents. So we're saying we're going to raise our kids in the Christian faith. We're going to teach them the word. You can't make them have faith, by the way. It's not your job to make them have faith. Your job is to raise them up in the faith of their confess, teach them to confess that faith. And ultimately they belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord anyway, when they were handed over to you. So you're kind of like parents are stewards of these kids. All right, God, thanks for this gift. If God even gives a person marriage and children. So thanks for this gift, Lord. And now as a steward of this gift, I'm gonna teach the child the faith. Anyway, so at the beginning of baptism, there's the, the, uh, the exorcism. The, verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, notice the language, it passes through what? Interesting word. So I'm not reading into this. So remember the context, who's writing this gospel? Luke. And what, so he's talking, he's in the context of a church that is actually practicing baptism. Like as he's writing this stuff. So you get all this imagery of like, when you see baptism or Lord's Supper references in the text itself, it's not accidental. But so the Holy Spirit out of, a, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. Now to be fair, waterless isn't just like a, bapt, a baptismal, baptism-less world, but where else have we seen waterless places so far in the, in the Gospel of Luke? In the wilderness, who is out in the wilderness? The devil, what's he doing? Tempting Jesus, right? So we associate wilderness, this desert. I mean, think about even Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness. So that's, that's like in contrast to them entering into the promised land. So we get this work of the devil and this giftedness of God in contrast, even in the people of Israel. And now here, the waterless places, they get this, maybe picture it, this devil. I, I always think of like in Ghostbusters 1 when Slimer like is running down the, the hotel lobby. No? Waterless places, flying through the hotel, seeking rest. Now the Greek, the Greek there is like, it's not like he's seeking a place to, to nap. He's desperately seeking what? Another place to go. Another palace, to use the language of Jesus from before. He's desperately seeking a new person. And then finding none says, I will return to, notice the possession here, my house. So the devil, these demons are actually thinking about people like, oh, I, that's where I'm going to go back. My house from which I came and when it comes, it finds the house, what? Swept and put in order. Now, this is a weird thing. So, what, what does that mean? Have you ever, have you ever like, gone, when you're, when you're, like, buying a house, with a, you got your realtor there, and you're going to look at homes, you can always tell the houses that people live in from those that they don't. This is so, it's been furnished. By, but no one like, no one's house looks like this, 
Like you walk in the house where somebody's actually living and trying to sell the house at the same time, you can see they tried to tidy up. There's always like, there's still like, in my house would be like, there's still random doll debris scattered about, right? You can't, you can't, it's very difficult to mask that someone lives here versus no one living here. So it can be clean and put in order. That's how your house is, right? As soon as you go through the trouble of like cleaning your bathroom, you're like, okay, no one go to the bathroom. It's really clean right now. And I don't want it to, <laughs> gotta go to the bathroom, go to the gas station. But as soon as you actually live in the place and you use the kitchen and you use this, it just it becomes dirty again. So here's the demon who's come back and he finds the house all nice and tidy. So it's not that the demons aren't living there. It's also who else is not living there? Jesus. So the devil has been cast out, and yet there's nothing there. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they come and enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now, this is a really bizarre teaching because it's like we don't see that happening. And so we have to take it from the teaching of Jesus on the fact that it does that we have this reality of a spiritual realm, the demons who are actively seeking places to jump into, people to jump into and to do harm to. And there's no neutral, there's no neutral, right? For whoever's not with me is against me. So the devil's come, there's no Jesus there. And if there was Jesus there, I mean, think about it. Every time Jesus runs into a demon in the scriptures, what happens? What does a demon do? It's like Jesus doesn't have to even say anything. The demons go running up to Jesus, begging him not to do anything to them. And Jesus is like, well, I wasn't, I hadn't said anything yet. Like when Jesus throws the famously cast of demons, legion into the pigs, that guy sought out Jesus. What, what have you to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Please, and he begs him to, to be cast into the pigs and not thrown into the abyss, into hell yet, right? So there's this reality of the demonic realm and the demons trying to do their damage. And so it's all the more cautionary law to us to be filled up with Jesus. Or even as Jesus taught him, even in the previous, ideally we'd read this all in one, in one string of context, where Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer and then he gives that whole dissertation about prayer and the stuff we should be asking, all the good gifts we're free to ask God for. Ultimately, the most important gift God's wanting to give us is the Holy Spirit. That's at the end of verse 13. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So He wants us filled with the Holy Spirit, filled up with Jesus. Well, how does that happen? Well, Jesus is about to tell us. Is there a hand back here? Is that Kevin? Yeah. Yeah, I, I try to, one of the challenges with scripture is like, we gotta remember that Jesus is actually trying to do something to us by teaching it, by even having this read to you right now, right? And that is reminding us of the reality, rather than doing a test case of a body over there who had a, had a demon in him and the demon jumped out 
And then Jesus didn't jump in, and so the devil jumped back in. But rather, it's telling you and me, all right, if the devil is not in me, he wants to be there. And so fill it up with something else, right? Um, and to avoid those things that are unholy. I mean, kind of a good a trademark phrase of the Christian is like, Touch holy things, don't touch unholy things. Look at holy things, don't look at unholy things. And Jesus, right, uh, coming up in verse 33, it's on the same handout, but for us it's probably two months away, talks about the light, stuff getting into the body. It's just being the very, like, the, the gospel comes into my body through my ears and through my eyes, right? So if, I'm, if, if the light and the gospel is not coming in, then it's going to be bad that's coming in. So we want to fill up our eyes and our ears with holy things. So that's what he's doing more so than maybe a test case of this, this random imaginary person, right? Good question. I mean, that's how, at least that's the, way I, that's the way I'm trying to picture this thing. Like, other, otherwise, what does it mean for the house to be swept and put in order in contrast to the devil? So the demons cast out, and he comes back and he doesn't find anybody there. That's why it's clean and, and neatly put in order. So it's like Jesus, the gospel comes and casts the devil out, but then without actually a life of faith, of hearing the word, being filled up by the word. Similarly, Jesus talks about the seed that's sown and the, 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 the plant quickly sprouts up, but there's no depth of soil and then it quickly dies. Right? Or it's choked out, or the, or the birds come and swipe it up. Those are all cautionary things for us of the significance of God's word and, and the assault of the devil to try to choke it out or, or have us dry, uh, dry, dried out by suffering. Right, well, it's, it's the reason. So, um, try to get at your, if I understand your question here, Kevin, like, there's not another way. It's not like there was, there's a way to do it without Jesus, but it is all gift. So ultimately, the devil is cast out of a person, and then ultimately, it's not like I can, like I'm an active role in this in a way. I, I feel like I, I am. Like, oh, maybe I'll make a decision for Jesus. Or if I work really hard, right? Then, I'm, then all of a sudden I've turned faith instead of a gift. Now it's something that I'm doing. So what we have to be mindful of is right now, and in, in, in even having this word preached to us of the fear of the devil and of the fear of unbelief, that is the law itself that has us running to the word. So it's not that, okay, yeah, my, my feet are the ones that run to the, Sanctuary, or to open my, my hands are the ones that open my Bible, or my ears are the one that listen to my, my Bible reading, or whatever it is. And yet, I'm not doing that except for being, being pushed there by the law that's both telling me to do it, promising me salvation through it, right? So I can't take credit for it, even though I would say I am still kind of, I'm still kind of involved in this thing. Right? I know it wasn't your question, maybe. Keith. So, it is, so the demon got 
tossed out of this person. Can't find any place. Goes back to that person. He's really seven of his cohorts. Yeah, what's the deal with seven? And and in the number seven. That's mysterious. I was thinking about that number this morning. So he goes and gets seven spirits, which would make a total of eight. For Luke, eight is a significant number. Eight, because he's all talk, always talking about new creation. So the seven days of creation and then the eighth day is the new creation. The baptismal life is always talked about as the eighth day. The number eight is significant, but it's always associated with good. In this case, it's not good. So I have no idea. It's almost like Luke's not making it up. Jesus just said it. Why said it? I don't, I have no idea. I was flipping through my commentaries. I don't see it. Oh, well. If they didn't point it out, I'm not... Well, let's, so, well, okay, we'll keep riding this horse, Keith. Um, I don't want to finish this handout anyway. The, uh, going, going back to the, the, what casts out the demons? What, what casts the devil out of heaven? The devil's primary work is accusing of, of sin. And so what, what renders him weak is the forgiveness of sins. But let's think about... No. no. God's forgiveness is not contingent upon your acceptance of the forgiveness. That's what's, yeah. right? It's a gift. Well, I don't want the gift. Too bad. Got it. Um, so think about sin in our own lives. How do, so the sin, so I'm, forg- I'm confessing my sin, handing it over to Jesus. Does not that same sin come back and try to do its damage? Right? So that's, but that's not the embodiment. I mean, it's not to say the demons are the embodiment of our sin, but I mean, what's, who's bringing the temptation if not the devil? So don't we not, don't we encounter the same temptations again and again, right? And they get worse and harder. Like some, so you go, you fall into one sin and then they, they kind of like unravel. It's this is classic of, um, well, for one, in a very practical sense, this is why our sin is actually bad for us. And we know it, but the sin promises to be good. In fact, I think it was our hymn of the day today that that talked about that. Everlasting happiness, eternal Ah, where is it? It talks about how sin basically always promises to bring good, but never delivers on it. It's ultimately hollow and empty. And yet, so the, the devil comes with his temptation towards sin, promising that it's gonna be good, just as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is gonna, don't you wanna be like God, doing good and evil? So temptation comes in this way, promising some kind of a good, half-truths even, and then ultimately, I fall into sin. Now, at that point, it's like I either go running back to Jesus for forgiveness, and even that is brought to me as gift and repentance, or I keep down that road, which makes up every like, crime TV show ever. It's always like, there was an affair, and then there was murder, 
and there's lies and stealing. And so it's all kind of, it's always the full package. It's never just like one thing. So sin kind of comes. These demons kind of come in, in, their, in their groups. A lot of that's just me, just, I'm speculating here, right? So Jesus is saying these things. We're trying to wrap our minds around it from what else we know from the scriptures. Any other comments or questions here? Somebody else have more clarity than that? Ina. Yeah, yeah, very good. So, the um, for those who are not in the faith, the devil has no incentive to destroy you. So, if things are going well for you, and you're an unbeliever, the devil wants them to keep going well for you, right? But it's it's through the son of suffering, uh, to use the language of the parable of the sower. It's the trials that are brought to us by life in this world, that the sinful flesh as a consequence of our own sins, and by the, devil of, by the devil himself, as he did in Job. So suffering challenges come, and that actually becomes a thing that can turn us away from God. How can God allow? It's like it, it, never, gets, it, it never ceases to amaze me that every atheist debate I listen to, they're always bringing up, how can a, an all-powerful, righteous God allow suffering? Suffering is the thing, it's a, it's a huge thing that we all have to face and go through. And it's in those moments of trial that we start wondering, how can there be a loving God in this? And so the devil's there slithering up, bringing his doubts. And so, yeah, we're praying, we're constantly praying to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, to be filled up with faith in Jesus, to, to better face those times of trial and suffering and to keep the devil at bay, right? And, and I mean, at the very, we don't ever want to walk, or walk out of here afraid of the demons. So Luther has this great line, like whenever the devil comes and brings his accusations and assaults, which is the primary assault of the devil is his accusations, your unbelief. I mean, ultimately, you wouldn't be scared of death if you, if you actually believed in God. So our fears, all of our, all, anything that we fear makes us anxious is evidence of our unbelief. And so ultimately the devil comes and he brings us his accusation about our unbelief. And the devil says, or Luther, Luther says to, to yell back to the devil, yes, you're right. I don't believe like I should. I'm a terrible sinner, but Jesus only died for sinner. Only died for sinners. I'm baptized, which means I don't belong to you. I belong to the Lord who only dies for sinners. So like the devil brings his accusations and you don't self-justify. That's always our response to sin. I, I needed to do that because ultimately there wasn't any love in our marriage anyway and I really like this other person. So ju try to justify these things. Rather than just leaning in, you're right, I'm a sinner, I'm terrible, I made a huge mistake, but I don't belong to you, devil. You have no power over me. So in that sense, in that context, the sin, we can actually look at our sin as evidence that Jesus has died for us. Now, carefully, you shouldn't go on sinning that grace may abound. I'm just saying that when a person is perplexed by their sin, say, yes, devil, I'm a sinner. Jesus only died for sinners. So that's the, whenever you feel the, that, that weird like presence of the, the demons, 
<laughs> like I even, it's getting to be, I mean, now I got little kids, right? So I'm worried about them. We're at the, the, the far, some farmer's market. What was it? I don't remember when it was. And there's like, a, there's like people selling, you know, vegetables. Then also you get like crazy wackadoodles selling their like, their aroma candles and all their Buddhist statues. And they're one, and like, they're, they want to push weird things. And of course, where do my kids want to go? Don't you want a donut? Why are you walking up to her? Making the sign of the cross. And I'm like, we're standing there in front of them like, isn't it cool to be baptized, girls? You know? <laughs> uh, that's the kind of stuff the devil hates. The devil flees at the name of Jesus. 1045. Let's hit one more thing. And we'll, and we'll, and we'll resume with true blessedness. So we've gotten through the uh, verse 26. So verse 27, as Jesus said these things, so randomly, Jesus is talking about the prayer, casting out the demons, the unclean spirit, and then randomly this lady shouts out, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. And <laughs> uh, and, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, Think that language. Blessed is the womb that bore you. Who's he talking about? Mary. Do you remember at the beginning of Luke when Mary herself had received the promise from the angel Gabriel? What did Mary say? All generations will call me blessed. Blessed is the womb that bore you. So it's like true. They're doing it now. I always picture that lady like in the princess bride, that one lady who's like rubbish. No, no Princess Bride fans out there. <laughs> but so he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, which we sing in the service of Matins, which you don't do anymore. I mean, in the day school, we do it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary, in the context of her receiving all these gifts from the Lord, she even says, let it be so to me according to your word. So Mary herself is never putting attention on herself. She's also fleeing back to God's word. That's why Jesus just kind of doubles down on that now. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it because hearing the word of God fills you up with Jesus, not the devil. So right here in the context of being whether I'm filled up with unclean devils or unclean spirits or whatever, now I want to be filled up with the Spirit. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. A language of keep us, hold on to, grasp. Yeah. Right, so just, and that's, and that's only, I mean, it's, been, it's been a long time since we talked about that, but it's only like a few verses before this. The go, today's gospel lesson, if you'll notice where the gospel is catching up with us quite rapidly because we're going so slow. A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, Mary and Martha. It's just before this. So you see this clear theme in the gospel of Luke of the the. the the preeminence or the effectiveness of the word, the, the um, significance of hearing the word. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary, who has chosen the better part, if you haven't come to church yet today, that's the gospel reading. It's 
Jesus commending Mary for hearing the word. It's just going to go on and on with that. So um, as, as Romans unfolds for us, faith comes by hearing. But remember, Paul did not make that idea up. It's, it, all Paul is doing is unfolding the gospels that we already have. So here we have, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why? Because it's through the word that's filling us up with the spirit, with Jesus. So another hand. Any, any other comments or thoughts on that? What does it mean to keep the word of God? What do you think? Well, I mean, so just think of it practically. So am I, am I put it in my pocket? Well, coming up, coming up within the same chapter, after, the, after we get to the sign of Jonah, again, ideally we'd study this in the same context, but for me it's months apart. But coming up in verse 33, talks about hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. So we, he fills us up with his light instead of the unclean spirits, right? So to keep God's word is nothing other than to, to live by God's word. To protect, I mean, the, same, the word for keep is the same word in the Greek for like guard and protect. So, but what does that mean? Like you walk around your Bible with a sword at night, but rather it's to actually guard and protect the hearing of God's word in you. It's important, it's significant. God's doing stuff to us in the word. Um, there's a great line in Pastor Barton's sermon. He's a gifted preacher and I'm thankful to have him. Um, so he said uh, that one of the, the, the Martha's, it wasn't the Martha was doing, well, in our lives, the temptation is not to, to do works that are not seemingly good, but it's, it's works that seem to be good, that, are, that just are just good enough to replace God's word in our own minds. So he said, it's, not, it's, it's, when, it's when a father who feels guilty about not spending enough time with his kids during the week says, God has given me these kids. God wants me to spend time with these kids. And the only day I, the only day I have is Sunday. And so on Sunday, I'm going to take the kids to the park. That was his example. So it's all mass. It's like dripping with piety. I want to be a good Christian father and make up for all of my misdeeds. And all I'm doing there is I'm pulling the kids away from the, the one thing that's needful. Uh, that was a great, I think that was a great, great example there of this. So to keep God's word, to be guard and protect, hearing God's word in my own, in my own life, in the life of my family. And also, the, to be careful that it, it remains pure, the purity of the word, which he's going to unfold in the, maybe next week we'll get to it. Kevin, another hand in the back. Oh. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing is we, we're told so, to, to hear the word of God and keep it, but I don't keep it on my own. He entrusts it to me. That's even in at the, the last line of today's epistle is like, he's like energized me with the gospel. He's actually the one who equips me to, to keep it and guard and protect it. But how does he actually energize it and allow me to keep it? By hearing and it's hearing both law and gospel. So for us to, for us to be 
given the law that says you need to be in church. You need to be reading your Bible. You need to be thinking about these things. That is the law by which the Lord gets you to do it, right? And so we give thanks for God's word of both law and gospel that's, that's proclaimed to kill our own sinful self and drive us to the gospel. Any other comments, questions? Anything from the, the bleacher seats? Are these the cheap seats? Are those the cheap seats? All right, we'll pick up with the sign of Jonah, verse 29, next week. The Lord be with you.